I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome back, everyone. This is Cal Raustiala, co-host of International Law Behind the Headlines. And I'm really pleased to have as our guest on the episode today, Felix Salmon, who is probably known to many of you as the chief financial correspondent of Axios. Felix has worked for many other uh, journalistic uh, companies over the years. He also hosts the Slate Money podcast, uh, and he's an expert on all things financial. And so it's great to have Felix on uh, to talk about the topic of the Pandora Papers and the offshore financial system. So, Felix, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a big topic. There's a lot of things to uh, to dig into, and I know you have uh, you've covered this for quite a while. But maybe we could just start with a couple of uh, basics about Pandora, and then uh, and then move into the bigger picture. But so, the Pandora Papers are. I guess the third now of these big data dumps of millions and millions of documents, is that right? Uh, yeah, I think if I'm counting, the big one before this was Panama, um, and I think there was a smaller one before Panama. Yeah, yeah. So, And I think there are literally several million emails and, and docs of various kinds, so it's quite a big... Uh, it's, I can tell you as a journalist, I was involved peripherally in the Panama Papers investigation. I was not involved in Pandora. It's, these are huge things which are organized by something called the ICIJ, the International Committee of Investigative Journalists. Um, there's insane data security. There's absolutely mind-boggling amounts of information. You get hundreds of journalists from all over the world pouring through all of these documents, trying to find stories in them. And, and you rapidly... Uh, lose the forest for the trees. And that's why all of these stories are, are, tend to be incredibly hard to read and incredibly long because there's just so much information in them um, that you you wind up just getting swamped. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And in fact, my hope in our brief conversation today is we'll focus more on, on forest uh, issues and just try to understand the significance of, uh, not so much the political significance, which you know I suppose is still to be determined, uh, though many political figures are implicated, uh, but just also how this system works and what it tells us about the offshore financial system and kind of the global uh, system of tax uh, avoidance and evasion that seems to be uh, part of this story. So uh, so that's our goal. Um, so maybe we could begin, and I know you have covered these things for a long time. Um, this phrase offshore is obviously commonly used in this story and many similar stories, and, you know, to a lawyer, it's an interesting concept. What does it mean for something to be offshore and the derivation of that? So I'm just curious if you could provide a little background on, on why that phrase is used and, and how you understand it. Oh, I mean, so I remember when I first became a financial journalist, I worked for a magazine called Euro Money. And the reason it was called Euro Money was it was named after Euro bonds. And Euro bonds were named after Euro dollars. And Euro dollars were dollars that were outside the United States. And there was a whole separate bond market, um, all you know, based in terms of lending and borrowing these dollars outside the United States. I think an Italian toll road was the first one. And basically, that concept of when you have money outside your home 
um, country is at the heart of what offshore means. And it doesn't need to be very far offshore. So again, growing up in the UK, um, places like Jersey or the Isle of Man would count as offshore, even though, you know, they were only a few miles offshore, but they had different legal regimes, different tax regimes, and that's what matters. Um, different bank secrecy regimes, that kind of thing. And the, the general idea is that if you keep assets outside a certain country, then at that point, it's not the business of that country anymore. So if I am, say, Panamanian, and I keep my money in South Dakota, then it's really at that point, no business of anyone in Panama, what that money is or who it benefits. Um, and it can be kept incredibly secret. And so what you, for, for me, I think when people use the word offshore these days, it's nearly always bound up with secrecy. It's about like, can I have assets kept in a trust company in a foreign country somewhere? that my creditors don't can't attach that people like my government doesn't know about that my spouse can't try and claim when we get divorced that kind of thing you know it's interesting you mentioned south dakota because that's one of the striking things is many of these jurisdictions implicated in this story and and previous ones are not even offshore at all uh they're right here right here at home in the case of the us or or maybe even an entire country uh operates as a as an offshore jurisdiction, as it were, um, but it does. So, seem- yeah, historically it was Switzerland, right? Historically, yeah. like it was always the Swiss bank account, um, and then various things happened to make the Swiss bank account much less of a sort of secret safe haven. You can't have like a numbered account in Switzerland anymore, which has your name nowhere on it. And so, yeah, the caravan has moved on. It moves on to various different places, and right now, the place it's moved on to is, as you say. Um, South Dakota, which is offshore for most of the world, it's just not offshore for Americans. But it <laughs> it, um, it does it does uh, appeal to Americans as well. A lot of the, a lot of the stuff that appeals about South Dakota to you know someone from Nigeria would also appeal to someone from California. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, Delaware is also another one that gets raised. And in a sense, the notion of offshore. I mean, I assume I don't really know the etymology, but I'm guessing. Isle of Man and Jersey were part of the original kind of way in which it got viewed as offshore. And it does seem to be concentrated on little islands often. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, there's a lot of small Caribbean islands which have really made it their business to, you know, make a bunch of money from the financial services industry that's that way. But then what happened after the financial crisis was there was a big kind of global regulatory crackdown on all of these little baby jurisdictions like Grenada or British Virgin Islands or Belize or, you know, Panama for that matter. And they all ended up basically getting strong-armed and signing up for this huge um, international agreement called the Common Reporting Standards, where everyone, you know, reports back what's in their own country's accounts to everyone else. And at the end of all that, there was only really one country which hadn't signed up um, to those standards, and that was North Korea. No, wait, I mean um, the United States. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you raised that. So so let's talk about the, the kind of multilateral efforts and the global efforts to rein this in, because, you know, from a legal point of view, obviously, the notion that something that either sits in or occurs in another jurisdiction 
is in the business of a second jurisdiction is is not a principle that's uh, I, I would say that maybe it's a widely held principle for certain things, but there are many many exceptions, and we have many examples of regulating what is essentially offshore activities uh, through extraterritorial regulation, and, and that's not unique to the United States by any means. So it, it kind of is, though. I mean, I want to kind of like push back a little bit. It's very American. Like America is the only country in the world that taxes global income. America is the only country in the world that has this kind of hegemonic swagger, which allows it to think to itself, or oh, we don't, <laughs> we can just project our power across the world and regulate and tax basically anything anywhere on the planet. And everyone goes, well, I guess you're America. You can do that. No one else even, no, no one else attempts it to the degree that America does. I, this is a topic for another podcast. Uh, you and I might have a slightly different emphasis on this point, but I don't disagree with you. I was thinking more broadly about the many areas in which states assert some form of jurisdiction outside of their borders. But certainly you're right for tax uh, and for many other things, the U.S. is an outlier. And, it, and historically, it always was. We were the ones who really, starting with antitrust, pushing pushing this notion of extraterritorial regulation. Um, but here, uh, the multilateral efforts, the common reporting that you mentioned, um, they don't, so, well, let me ask you how effective they are. Uh, are they working? And, um, and if not, why not? I think they are. And, and we saw them working, you know, most, I, I think maybe some of your listeners will remember, uh, you know, about 10 years or so ago, um, a bunch of Americans with Swiss bank accounts wound up paying enormous penalties and, mm -hmm. um, you know, coming clean to the IRS because, you know, uh, that there was no secrecy in Switzerland anymore. And there was actually, um, it was part of like the Swiss constitution. It was like unconstitutional to, co to compel Swiss banks to hand this information over to the American authorities. And yet, all of that information ended up getting handed over to the American authorities. Like, as I say, America has a lot of hegemonic soft power that it can exert around the world. And that was a prime example of that. And it wasn't just the Americans. Everyone realized that, you know, across Europe and basically around the world, you know, they, there were one too many African dictators who were just absconded with billions of dollars and people, you know, which was, which was the property of the state. And, these were very poor countries and that money would just disappear and people just got utterly sick of it. And they said, we're going to really try very hard to make sure that we can minimize that kind of behavior going forward and also try and track down some of that money that has been stolen from, from countries. And so they did a pretty good job, I have to say. And one of the interesting things about South Dakota in particular is that, you know, it has wound up being the most attractive legal destination for a lot of these monies, precisely because all of the kind of shadowy, quasi-legal, gray zone, gray area places um, have now basically been dragooned into line. That's really interesting. So, so your view of the kind of arc of the story of offshore tax havens and, uh, and kind of financial uh, machinations is that uh, it was really bad in the past. Uh, I'm just trying to summarize, but tell me this is a fair assessment. It was really bad in the past. And then maybe the United States, but also others uh, really cracked down. 
we began to see money flow out of traditional havens. Uh, and now the system persists, which I assume is one of the imports of the Pandora Papers, is there's still plenty of this happening, but it's much reduced from what we saw before. Is that a fair assessment? Well, the Pandora Papers is huge. And uh, like what we don't have in the Pandora Papers is you know, a nice clean sort of time series of, mm. you know, how much how much is this kind of thing going on and has it been going, you know, and is it becoming less common, more common? Um, certainly there are massive tax benefits to do lots of, you know, in, in, to move money offshore um, to this day, especially if you're not American, that happens. I think the difference is that Nowadays, it tends to be a little bit less secretive. I mean, what's that? A little bit less illegal, a little bit less <laughs> sort of of dubious legality. Because what what you wind up doing is you wind up, you know, paying all of these lawyers whose information was leaked as part of the Pandora Papers to to kind of you know just set up the right trusts, set up the right perpetuities, make sure that everything is untouchable in exactly the right ways, and find the right jurisdictions that will smile on that kind of behavior. And it's become institutionalized, I would say. It's, it's become less of a kind of personal handshake relationship that you have with your private banker in Zurich, and more of like, a you know, there's certain law firms who just specialize in this kind of thing and know what they're doing. And then, you know, it, it becomes almost second nature. So when Tony Blair buys a building in central London, he doesn't buy the building, he buys the company that owns the building. And if you own buy the company that owns the building, then you don't need to pay stamp duty so you save yourself half a million dollars. And that's just normal. It's just like basic common or garden tax avoidance which is entirely legal. Yeah, the role of lawyers is obviously of great interest to me and probably to most of the <laughs> of the listeners to us right now. And so it does seem like lawyers play a huge role in enabling this process and and as you say maybe creating the regulations but certainly um, implementing within the the rules that currently exist. Uh and so um it's not so much criminal activity as much as uh, simply normal. I mean, that's the example you just gave, kind of normal activity that's done in a way that strikes many of us as problematic from the point of view of, of fundamental fairness in our tax system, perhaps, but it's not. Yeah, I, I think I think the criminal bit really comes as part of like the KYC procedures, you know, that like it's not that the trusts themselves. KYC the is criminal. know your customer. Is that right? And exactly. Yeah. And and. It's not that the trusts themselves are criminal. There's nothing illegal about setting up a trust in South Dakota or Alaska or Nevada or wherever you want to do it. Um, but the money that goes into those trusts is often pretty dirty. And the number of questions that the trustees ask about who exactly are you and where did this money come from is that, that those questions don't generally take a huge amount of time. And, and, and right. that's the problem that you can, if you do have criminally obtained money and then you put it into a South Dakota trust, it's very, very hard for the legal owners of that money to extract it from that trust. 
almost impossible. Let me ask you how this interfaces with two other things that I know you know a lot about. Um, one is cryptocurrencies, and the other is the art world. So they both <laughs> my two favorite yeah. subjects. Exactly. So I know you know a lot about them, and they both seem to me to have a role in the story in terms of being alternative vehicles for maybe hiding money. all the things you started off in your comments. You want to hide money from your creditors, from your spouse, from the tax man, whatever it may be. They both can serve that purpose and kind of move things around in, in mysterious ways. So is this all part of an interlocking system? Are they alternatives? How, how, how do you characterize that? It's a, it's a, so I would say that um, the primary purpose for setting up, you know, uh, South Dakota Trust or Panama Trust or something like that is precisely to do that whole thing of like making sure that the money is out of the reach of various individuals and, and entities. And there's a lot of secrecy involved and all of these kind of things. That's like, that's the reason why it exists. Right. Um, I wouldn't make that claim for art. You know, art that, like the, the purpose of art is not money laundering. Now, it, art can be used as part of money laundering. Art is a very portable way of moving value around the world. A painting can be bought. It can be, you know, very secretly placed in a freeport outside Geneva. No one will ever need to know where it is. And seizing it is going to be very hard because no one knows where it is. There is a lot of secrecy involved. Actual ownership can be incredibly opaque. Um, there's a lot of very, you know, dodgy dealings happening every day in the art world. Um, there's dodgy dealings with real paintings that get you know, it's stashed away. There's dodgy dealings with fake paintings. There's all manner of like underhand activity goes on in the art world. Um, and it's a problem. And again, there is increasing amounts of international cooperation coming to bear on that problem. That like we're not at the same place that we are with the common reporting standards, but like there are more and more stringent rules on art dealers to go through KYC processes and, and that kind of thing. Um, the KYC rules in the crypto world are still nascent. Like, basically, they govern what's known as the on-ramps and the off-ramps. If you want to convert dollars into crypto or crypto into dollars, then most of the... And most of the um, Companies that will do you, do that for you will insist on knowing who you are first. But there are some who who won't. And but on the other hand, if you have you know crypto and you want to convert it into a Picasso or something, that can just be done bilaterally, and you never need to touch any reporting. So there's a huge amount of what I would say is actually illegal tax evasion rather than legal tax avoidance going on in the crypto world. There's massive capital gains from people selling their crypto. Um, people are making huge amounts of money in crypto. And virtually none of that income is being reported to any national tax authority. So if you were to tell me that crypto was like built on sort of regulatory arbitrage and tax evasion, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily push back very much on that one. And do you see, I mean, that's all really interesting. And of course, it immediately makes me think of 
non-fungible tokens as kind of the marriage of these two concepts, but we'll, we'll leave that for another conversation. But is it fair to say that the rise of cryptocurrencies and the decline of the kind of overt tax evasion that was the traditional Cayman Island style or something uh, that you described earlier in our discussion, are they linked in some way, causally? In other words, yeah, it's easy to have the common reporting standards and people accept them and Switzerland buckled and all of that, in part because there's an alternative now. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair that, you know, we, we've had many years now of, you know, Silk Road and ransomware and like explicitly criminal activity being denominated in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And if you are actually a criminal, then rather than trying to deal with, um, legitimate institutions in the Cayman Islands or anywhere else and trying to sort of nod and wink your way through opening accounts with them and making sure that you have access to that money and doesn't get confiscated by authorities. Like, yeah, just keep it in crypto, you know, keep it in tether because then it's yours and you don't need to worry about it being seized. So I, I think you, you probably have a point there. Just to go, Tether just is a is a stable coin, uh, right? So out of uh, the ideas, it's each each one is worth a dollar, and it's always worth a dollar. Is that right? That's the idea, exactly. Yeah. And and you can argue till you're blue in the face about whether or not it's backed by anything interesting. But by convention, if nothing else, it's worth one dollar. So you're you're not even taking you're not even speculating on the value of Bitcoin or Ether or Doge or anything else. You're just it's it's a dollar equivalent, but just without the superstructure of you know regulatory oversight and AML KYC that you have in the actual financial system. Right, right. I want to go back to something you said a moment ago because it always struck me when I would fly into Geneva, uh, I would pass that thing called the Geneva Free Port, which just seemed like a bunch of storage units full of art. Um, what? Can you tell us more about what is a free port and how it fits into this offshore financial system that we're discussing? So that Geneva free port is the greatest art museum in the world. It, there is more priceless art in that free port just outside Geneva airport than there is in you know, the Louvre. It's, I'm not even joking. It's absolutely chock-a-block full of amazing art and no one knows exactly what's in there uh, no one really knows you know who owns it or anything it's all shrouded in that wonderful swift secrecy and it's a freeport which means that it's it's a little circle sort of carved out of switzerland which isn't even really subject to swiss law um and this isn't unique to Geneva, right? There are free ports all over the place. I believe there's even a couple of them in New York City, like these tiny little things that can get carved out. Um, so, but yeah, the idea is that the painting, if it's stored in the Geneva Freeport, is not actually in any country and is not subject to the laws of any country. And it's just kind of being stored there. And certainly no one is exhibiting it or enjoying it in terms of its aesthetic qualities. It's just in a crate. 
Yeah, it's a crazy, it's a crazy system, and it's uh, it's always kind of fascinated me. Well, I really appreciate you you coming on to talk about this. There's so many other things we can discuss, but I'm gonna um, I'm gonna try to stick to our normal timeline. And as listeners could probably guess, I've known Felix a long time, and he's always really interesting on these issues. And I would love to find other ways to uh, to bring you back on the podcast, Felix, in the future. I'm, I'm always happy to to ha- to come back, and maybe. Maybe you can come on Slate Money one of these days and we will have like a wonderfully nerdy legal wonk out because I love that. (laughs) That sounds fantastic. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Kyle.